Welcome to Recovery Uncovered, your all things recovery podcast. Recovery Uncovered is produced by MHAB Enterprises, a division of the Northeast Group of Companies located right here in Plattsburgh, New York. I'm your host, Mike Carpenter. Affectionately known as MHAB Mike. And I'm your co-host, Betsy Vicencio. Affectionately known as BV the Normie. We have one goal in these podcasts, and that's not to suck. Thanks for tuning in. Good morning, everybody. I'm Mike Carpenter, affectionately known as MHAB Mike, and I am your host of Recovery Uncovered. This is my sidekick, Betsy Vicenzio, also known as BV the Normie. But we are going to change BV the Normie because there's nothing about you that's normal. Wow. I, I decided on my way in today. And I want to tell you that we're, <laughs> we're a half hour late starting our podcast today because in typical Betsy fashion, she arrived late to the studio and then decided that she didn't like the setup of the chairs. So we spent 20 minutes moving the chair. Are you comfortable now? I'm, Is it I'm good? I'm so much better now. So a couple of things. Number one, you're the one that affectionately named me BV the Normie. So that one on you. So if you want to change it, more power to you. Kay. Number two. Team, is this this is the absolute first time I've ever shown up late. I've been here, 8.30 on the dot, part of the setup team, and with my apology, this is our normal configuration. I apologize, I like a little consistency, and I like to be close to okay, you. Okay, let's I pull the audience. Telly, Telly Schwartz, has Betsy ever been late to a meeting that you're at? <laughs> Bryn Judkins, has <laughs> Betsy ever been late to a meeting? <laughs> Whatever. <Ha>. All right. <laughs> you pay him, pay him today. So we have a we have a, a kind of a fun podcast today. And if you've been here for the first few episodes that we've done, you've heard me pick on Betsy a lot about one of her daughters, uh, one of her daughters who struggled with addiction and got into recovery. And I've constantly blamed Betsy for that addiction. And today we're going to hear the truth that it really is Betsy's <laughs> fault when her daughter tells her. Let's hope. Oh. Um, so our very special guest today is Bridget Murnane. Hi. Wave to everybody. Say hello. Hello. <laughs> so I want to tell you a story, a quick story about the family and, and how the world works in my opinion and fate <laughs> and things like that. You know, I have known Bridget for 16 years and I've known the family for probably a hell of a lot longer than that and although I wasn't don't necessarily know your father I know your younger sister's father and played hockey with him when we were kids so I, I it's almost like I've been in the family like all of your lives and when your mom came to work for us um, I got to know you a little bit and uh, and your younger sister and I got to watch you kind of grow up and go through high school and, and all of that stuff and then I got to see you know the ugly sides of what addiction does and and uh, and then I got to see your your I, I actually got to be a part of your uh, the beginning of your recovery which was uh, really a treat and I'll tell a personal story about that a little later on but <clears throat> so with all that said uh, welcome to our podcast, and we're glad that you're here. Thank you both for having me. Very excited to be here. And so let's start with, uh, give us a little background information. Tell us who uh, Bridget Murnane actually actually is. Ooh, Bridget Murnane from back then, Bridget Murnane middle, or Bridget Murnane now? Well, <laughs> I, I guess we'll start with Bridget Murnane back then. Tell us a little bit about Bridget Murnane back then. So I was born and raised in Plattsburgh, 
Um, my parents divorced at a super, super young age, uh, when I was at a super young age, so I was about one. Um, Told you it was your fault. Yep, <laughs> yep. There we you go. know, my mother Check. didn't stay in a really toxic relationship. Shame on her. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well said. <laughs> um, and <That's> <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> you heard the toxic part, though, I right? Did. Like, I gave you I some did. credit and, there. And, and I got the I got the sarcasm too. So I I really legitimately said thank you for. We believe we we certainly believe that the reason Betsy was late today was she really didn't want to come. She figured Agreed. she was just going to sit here and we were going to tear her apart, I, which we're really not going to do. I may have had a little anxiety around <laughs> this, so I'm not going to lie, you know, hanging on for dear life. With, sorry. So sorry, how were you. your younger days? Give me some recollections of what it was like being a child growing up in Plattsburgh, New York. So we were talking about it earlier. Um, I don't really have a memory earlier than seven years old. Um, from what I'm told, um, I, I do know that I lived in New Jersey for a part of that time. I do remember some really shitty things happening at that point. And then at seven years old, um, my father took my mother to court and my father got full custody. So I moved from New Jersey back up to Plattsburgh to live with my father. And that was really when my memory started to really come together. Um, I don't know if that's because of like the trauma that had happened in my life that I just had completely gotten rid of those first seven years or that my brain just wasn't fully developed. I don't know what the reason is. Um, but, you know, I grew up in a Catholic Catholic family, went to church every every Saturday. We didn't go Sunday. Sunday was for other things. Um, went to a Catholic school, um, elementary, middle school, and high school, graduated, uh, was an altar server, you know, grew up in a really Catholic family with this structure, with this idea of what a person should be, what a good person was. Um, at one point in my life, I believed that I wanted to be a nun. I remember that. And I would say all of the, the lines that the priest would say during Mass, and I was so proud, and I don't know if that's because I wanted, constantly needed acceptance from my family because I always felt really different. I don't know what that was. Um, and then I remember I decided I no longer wanted to be a part of the Catholic Church because women couldn't be priests. And I said, that's bullshit. If I want to be a priest, I am just as good at saying this as this guy up here. Right. Like, why can I not be a priest? Have um, they changed that now? Can women be priests no, in the Catholic no, Church? Not in the Catholic cannot. Church. Mm. Other denominations, yeah. You want to become a Catholic? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, not anymore. I was years ago, so no, I'm not doing. You're I'm not go doing back that. Just so that you can live in the world where women can't be leaders. So you made a, You just made a comment that you didn't. You didn't feel like you fit in or something like that. Would you say that that's a recollection of you when you were young? Yeah. You'd, you know, it's so funny. I have talked to, and you and I know each other really well and have had lots of conversations about recovery, and, and that seems to be just one of those things that's so common in all of us. And and it's not that we can't fit in. Like, I remember watching you, you know, going to watch you play soccer and basketball, and you had friends, and you were pretty well-adjusted, but it's the feeling inside. It's not the fact that I can't. They, we can't do those things. It's that feeling inside. Is that? We, yeah, we can appear like we fit in. We can fit in everywhere. I find that people who um, suffer from alcoholism and addiction, we can adjust to wherever we are because we're survivors, and that's what we do. We do what we can in order to survive in whatever situation we're in. Um, and I think we all do that from a really young age, you know. But I think if we look deep down in those times, like I wasn't, I really had no idea where I was supposed to be. What did you think grow, when she was growing up in those kind of early days and then her, as she got into be a young teenager? What, what kind of, yeah. I mean, on top of the fact that you were a lousy mother, what, yeah. what do you, what there's kind that, of do you? There's, so, you know, to, uh, 
to Bridget's story, and, and it, it, you know, it, it saddens me that she doesn't have memory of, of you know, those early years, because for me, she and I were kind of this, this little team of, uh, we were this little team. We had a little routine of things we did. You were right, your dad and I divorced young, and, and we kind of had our own little things that we did. I mean, we spent Sundays, we visited every possible Adirondack Lake, and, and uh, I felt like we had this kind of this really great thing that happened, and it was incredibly traumatic when, when you know, you were seven and a half years old and, and suddenly you were gone. Um, how, how much older are you than Santana? Six years. So that's interesting that you, so you, for the first six years, you only had one child. Yep. And, and you yep. had her. Yeah. And so, you know, as, you know, after Bridget went to live with her dad, um, it, you know, it, it, was, it was funky. First, for, for a period of time, I was still living out of the area, so I would come up virtually every weekend or every other weekend to spend time with Bridget and, and was really trying to manage kind of my own, uh, my own situation with that change with, you know, with Santana. Um, a couple of those years were really, really, really wonky. Um, but, you know, Bridget was just, you know, she's always been a great kid. She was so gregarious from the time she was really young. I mean, she had such a great command of, of language. She talked when she was young. She walked when she was young. I mean, she just was always just this really vibrant child that just loved people and she was, you know, and you watched her as she grew and, and I think that, you know, the personal challenges, that whole, you know, that whole kind of dynamic between her dad and I, I'm sure fostered some really funky and odd feelings. Um, you know, she became a lot more emotional, um, you know, probably as a result of all of those, uh, all of those really curious dynamics and, and I think trying to figure out where you know where you belonged and you know we went through multiple times where I don't I think you wanted to come and and come home to live with with us and that you felt better there many times and and yet you were always challenged with trying to keep everybody in your families families plural happy you know you didn't want so to disappoint anybody so you have two two daughters you have Bridget and Santana who's six years younger than you and mm -hmm. and I love your daughters equally. I've watched them both grow up. They're terrific, but Bridget's always been my favorite, and we I all know, know that Santana's Santana always been your favorite. Right? <laughs> okay. we, all, we all know that. Even Santana knows it. Oh, she yeah. knows, like, she's the favorite. Mm -hmm. So I said, oh, that's fine. I'm taking the more screwed up one. Then. Bridget's, Bridget's, <laughs> Bridget's my favorite. I'm I there need, for you. Honey. I need to have, so I need to be somebody's favorite. You I appreciate to, that. Thank you. you. Oh my told both of my children independently that they're both my favorite. I mean, good You have God. never told me that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we kind of expected that. So tell me when, when, when the, the drug use or addiction started, and I'm assuming for you it probably started like it does for a lot of kids, cigarettes, booze, pot, and then moved on. Yeah, so I smoked pot for the first time when I was probably 13 years old. Um, it wasn't a daily thing, wasn't even a monthly thing. You know, I had tried it and I was like, okay, yeah, this is cool, this works for me. I was 14 or 15 and I got drunk with my best friend and our other friend one night and that was super fun. And I was like, oh yeah, that was kind of cool. Um, I think when I was 15, I had torn my ACL, my MCL and meniscus in basketball. And so I had to have surgery to, to replace all of that. And I was prescribed, you know, oxycodone. So it's like five milligrams of oxy and then the rest is Tylenol or whatever. Um, and I started taking those and I was like, oh, 
this is really nice. I'm really, I'm really enjoying this. This is kind of, you know, this relaxes me. I feel like just at ease. There was no anxiety. There was no pressure from the outside world. It just felt calm. Um, obviously, at 15 years old, I didn't know where to get any of those. So once they were gone, they were gone. Thankfully, when I was 17, I tore my other ACL MCL meniscus. And so then that whole process started over again. Right around that time, my mom got cancer. And so once my prescription ran out, I was looking through all the medicine cabinets because I was a little older. I was like, oh, this is where we keep this stuff, medicine cabinets. And um, I found my mother's prescription, which was a little stronger than mine, and I was taking those on a daily basis um, most of my junior year. And then once those ran out, I started going through withdrawals, and I really didn't know what they were. I just thought I didn't feel well. And But once they were gone at that point, they were still gone. I was from a small town. Were you drinking and doing pot and recreational drugs at the same time too? Probably by 17. I wasn't drinking on a regular basis, but I was smoking on a semi-regular basis. Um, but I was in a, I was a three-sport athlete, so and I was really afraid that if I ever got drug tested or anything like that, it wasn't consistent enough at that point in my life because I had all these other things that, you know, quote-unquote brought me joy that I didn't want to give up at that point. Right. Would you say that the, it's interesting that you're kind of a, a you're a little different than a lot of addicts in that they get it one way or the other. Like they either go through the, the way that I did, conventional way, start drinking, you know, smoking pot and then cocaine and it moves on. Or other people get it where they never did drugs and then they started taking oxy or something like that as a pain medication and got hooked. You're almost a, a split of those. You started doing the recreational stuff and that was, eh, okay, not great. And then you, you know, you had the injury and you got oxy and you're like, wow, this makes me feel really, really good. Okay. So what, what happened? I mean, you graduated high school, you went to college, you were a pretty well-adjusted, normal kid for the most part. Yeah, um, on the outside, mentally, I don't think I was well-adjusted at all. But I went to college, um, I started smoking pot on a regular basis, daily, um, several times. I had worked that whole summer, saved up a bunch of money to go to college just for, you know, fun or whatever. Within my first two months, I had blown through several thousand dollars. And so then I remember I was sitting in this park that we used to go to and smoke pot. And there's a video of it somewhere because I had a camera and I must have accidentally hit like record and it recorded like this hour long conversation with my friend. And I said, you know what? I would really love to try all of the drugs in the world to be know that I'd to know that I would be satisfied with just smoking pot. That very weekend, I tried a multitude of drugs. I think it was like cocaine, Molly, a couple other things. And then after that, I was off and running. There was no stopping. What was Did you going have one on. that you liked more than anything, or was it just a were you just a garbage head like a lot of us? Just whatever you could get your hands garbage on. Garbage head, garbage just disposal. It, yeah, yeah, whatever you can get your hand. You know, we use it whatever. It doesn't really matter. We're just using whatever we can find. So can I before and with an apology, um, can I just ask? There was a point in time I remember where after you had gone to college, and you came home and you were talking about smoking pot, and you got a little bit like indignant and self-righteous and you're like, I'm a pot smoker, I'm a proud pot smoker, and you're just gonna have to learn to accept it because this is who I am. And I mean, I remember this conversation and I'm going, you were a little judgy. Yeah, <laughs> you were a little judgy. <laughs> a little judgy. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know. Well, I didn't know that I agreed with that as, you know, for a host of reasons, you know, some things that I had seen and people I had watched kind of try to be daily pot smokers and some of the challenges that their life had, and I, 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 yeah, I struggled with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Was there anything before you got really, really heavily into it, and we'll talk a bit about that, that your mom or a warning sign or something that somebody could have done? You know, I always ask my, and I'll tell you why I ask this. I ask myself that question because people have asked me, like, what could we have done differently for you? And, and I will tell you that unless for me you had started to help me when I was really, really, really young, like maybe three, four, five years old with the anxiety and the sensitivity and the lack of fitting in. I don't think at 10 or 11 or 12 or 13, there were many things anybody could have done for me that would have had my life go in a different direction. Do you feel the same way or? So I don't believe that there's anything at any point in my life that anybody could have done to change the way that my life turned out. You know, if I would have made different choices in my life, maybe, but there was no intervention from other people that I think could quote unquote prevent my life from happening the way it is. And that's, you know, that's something I have to come to terms with with my own daughter. You know, she is the daughter of two people who are thankfully both in recovery now, but both were heroin addicts. And I have to come to the terms with the fact that there may be nothing I can do aside from love her, support her, that's gonna keep her from potentially going down this path. Because I don't think there was anything anyone could have done. So what we've just done there is I, I've taken my 30 seconds to give you a reprieve from blaming you for your daughter's addiction, all right? So, but now it's we're going to go back to holding fault. you accountable. But we, we so there, I did, just, just to, so you know, I did, I did do something nice for you today. So you, you, you laid the foundation that said there was nothing I could have done different or better that could have stopped this freight train. I'll tell you after all the things you could have done differently. But Jerk. So, so it accelerated pretty quickly for you. You got to be pretty bad. So walk us through a bit of the kind of, not necessarily the war stories, because we don't want to reminisce but walk me through how bad it actually got for you over the next few years so my freshman year is when everything kind of took off I started just taking all the drugs I possibly could obviously I found opiates those were the love of my life I was drinking on a daily basis smoking pot on a daily basis taking any drug I could especially if I could find opiates Um, I gained the freshman 15 my first semester Um, after I started doing drugs I dropped probably 40 50 pounds within six months Um, I attribute a lot of that to because like the serotonin in my brain I was getting from all these other substances and I just I was majorly depressed and I just didn't eat plus the drugs Um, so I came home from my freshman year of college and I moved in with my friends from high school um, because my mom was telling me like oh I think you're not doing some not doing the best stuff and I'm like you know F you you don't know my life da 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 and I didn't want to live with my dad because you know it just he and I had a different relationship and that summer, all of my friends started using like I did. And I was like, oh, this is great. We were getting high every night. We were having such a great time. And um, I think that's when things really, really went downhill. It's because not only did I have my people in Albany that used like I did, I had people up here that used like I did. And so over the next three years, it just continuously went downhill of my ability to keep up all the things I wanted to do. I'd had a job at a summer camp that I had loved, that I'd had for years. Um, because I was working at a bar and a pizza shop. I wasn't getting home till four o'clock in the morning. And I was like, I can get up and you know go to camp. And I obviously couldn't because I was you know using until I'd left. So I lost that job. And yeah, it just, all of the things that I was able to do for a really long time, or what I thought was a really long time, in reality it was probably only a year or two. I couldn't do it. I couldn't hold down a job, even at a bar. I couldn't hold down a job. And how hard is it to pour a rum and coke, you know? <laughs> I couldn't. <laughs> well, when you're drinking them on the side, yeah, and right. it's, it becomes difficult. Yeah, yeah and yeah. like I couldn't hold down a job. I The job that I had right before I went to rehab is I, I could make pizza. And it wasn't even really pizza. I was making the salads and the chicken wings. Um, 
<laughs> but I couldn't hold down a job, you mm. know. Um, I couldn't do all of the things that I had done before. So my life went downhill within a matter of four years. Things got really bad to the point that I couldn't do anything. Did you have any overdoses? Any Narcans? Were yes. you Narcan back? How many times? Twice. Twice. That's not a ton for somebody that was as heavily involved as you. Criminal activity, get involved in anything you probably shouldn't have? Probably. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know <laughs> what the gonna, Statue of Limitations is on any of this stuff, we're so. Gonna, <laughs> we're going to leave it. At, I don't think you ever got arrested, though, did you? Um, I did get a DWI. Oh, that's um, right. Yeah, that's when, right. I do remember Oh, that, yeah. God, I was just 21. Yeah. Um, I need to find that mugshot because I was dressed as a Ninja Turtle because it was Halloween. And I'd really like to see that now. <laughs> I think I do rem I remember this. Yes, I, exactly. But I did get a DWI um, when I was 21, and that wasn't that wasn't super great. Mom was crying when she came to pick me up at the at the jail. Thankfully, they didn't put me in the cell. Um, the judge did say to me, though, when I went for my arraignment afterwards, he's like, oh, Miss Murnane, the most pleasant arraignment I've ever had at 4 a.m. So I always, I always held that you with were me. Very, you were very was, nice to him. I was you very were, pleasant, very, yeah. yeah. Well, well, just because I, you know, used drugs didn't mean I didn't respect authority when I knew I needed to. <laughs> when you knew you needed to, I like that. <laughs> Betsy, when did we start talking about her having a problem? 18. Yeah, you know, I think when she was going off to college and, you know, I think there we were, were worried about, there were some signs there yeah. that you and I were kind of talking about. We were talking, talking about, about Albany you know. and, you know, hanging out in Washington Park and, and, you know, you always did this thing with, you know, ah, your kid's going to be a freaking addict. You just wait and see, <laughs> you know, you fucked her up. <laughs> da, da, da. I mean, there was always that kind of little bit of sarcastic but I think it was you know I think there were these conversations where I began to go man I'm really worried that things are just not not going well and I remember the summer that you came and you she rented one of our apartments downtown and and it got really it got really wonky when I got a phone call from her roommate that said you know this has been going on and then you know everything really kind of ratcheted so we took you the, the we took you to rehab the first time, and I, I I vaguely remember this, and I remember you tried to leave. We were at lunch, I think, over in St. Johnsbury, Vermont, right after we'd gone. I can't even remember if it was before or after we toured Valley Vista. It was. So I don't remember so, lunch. I was not, <laughs> I was 19. Um, Lizzie had taken me to a meeting a couple weeks before because they're like, you have a problem. I was like, I don't have a fucking problem. Um, but Lizzie took me to a meeting in Katyville, and I went and I sat through it because I was like, you know what, if this will get everybody off my back, I'll go and I'll sit through it. And then I had come home from college, and Betsy and Mike were like, oh, we're going to take you. We're, let's go to lunch. Let's go to lunch in Vermont. And I'm like, okay, yeah, let's go to lunch in Vermont. We didn't go to lunch in Vermont. They brought me to rehab and had me sit down for two hours with these people telling me, oh, well, if you don't, you know, sounds like with the amount that you're using, you'll start to have detox right away. And I'm pretty sure I said to them, oh, don't worry, I have stuff in the car. Um, <laughs> we didn't tell you we were taking you to no, rehab? No. We, we, really? So no. We teach her I do remember yeah, this. That's, that's, that's a great Because story. you're like, listen, we're going to tell her we're going to take her to lunch in Vermont. And we're just going to go for a drive, and then we're just going to stop by Valley Vista. And we did go to lunch. We went to lunch first. I don't remember lunch. Um, at, uh, and I'm trying to think. It was like a little diner yes, type place. Yes, it was. Then we went to rehab, and she was in there for so long that we ended up going to dinner at that restaurant down by the water. Right That's the one where she was so pissed off. At oh, us. I think was, well, yes, I think at dinner you were really angry. Well, at I, us. I think it might have been that she might have, you, you know, you might have been withdrawing a little bit by that point. 
You know, you had spent several, I mean, it was hours that she was in. But didn't you go, so didn't you go to rehab that first time? No. No, no. No. So we only took you there and then we came back. You took me there in hopes that I would stay there. And I said, I'm like, all right, I'll sit here and I'll appease whatever's going on. But I was 19 at the time. Like there was no way that I was even remotely ready. So when was your first rehab then? So they both happened within a matter of four months of each other. Right. (laughs) I was 22. It was July. It was a Wednesday. And I was working at a pizza shop and I was withdrawing really bad. I had zero money and I'm like, I'm going to get really, really sick really, really soon. And so I called my mom and I said, Mom, I need help. I'm like, I'm ready. I'm ready to go whenever you want to take me. And she goes, well, let's go right now. I said, well, I have to finish work for the rest of the week. Let's go Friday. (laughs) (laughs) And that was the first time I went. We did end up going Friday. You and mom both took me. That's right. Yes. Okay. okay, Right. That was that was horrific. Um, That entire trip was just. I just remember crying the whole time, and I remember mom holding my hand. I remember you letting me smoke cigarettes in your car. Thank you for that. Didn't we? And I think I re- we bought we went and bought you a carton of cigarettes. Yes, I think after we dropped you off at rehab, you only had like one pack, so we went and bought her a carton yeah, of cigarettes and did. brought them back to you at rehab. That's right. Yes, that's right. And you completed rehab that first time. I did. And you came back. I sailed through it. I well. was so good. <laughs> well, I was so good. I did. Well, you, I think she did. You actually. made it. You made it to you know to that last week, and you were like. And you were... I graduated that program. Don't take that from me. (laughs) That's right. And then you came back here. And then I came back here. I had convinced my counselor. And I'm like, oh, my roommates are so supportive of my recovery. And, like, in my mind, they probably were. They just didn't know what that looked like. Do you think at that time when you left rehab the first time that you even really wanted to remain clean? Or was it more just, oh, I like how I feel, but I don't... Like, how did you feel when you left there that first time? I knew I didn't want to shoot heroin anymore, but I wasn't prepared to give up pot, alcohol, and all the other fun stuff. Like, I knew I didn't want to shoot heroin anymore, but I, di- I didn't know that there was a difference. Like, I thought that I could drink and it would be okay. I thought that I could smoke pot and it would be okay. You and Lizzie have so much in common because one of the things that she says, because she got sober young like you, she said it was, it was like, I didn't want to give up the fun. I was mm-hmm. like, what am I going to do at this age? Like, if I don't... Like, how am I going to get along with people? Like, every, this is what everybody does. It was very, you know what I mean? I don't want to destroy my life, but I want to be able to, like, have fun with my friends, kind of. So how long were you? weren't sober very long that time. A couple hours. A couple hours. So, nice. this, so I remember Santana and I went to pick up Bridget from rehab, and so we went down to Valley Vista. Can I just s- side point real quick? Santana knew that entire time that I was full of shit, even though I didn't. I yeah. just, sorry, side point, go ahead. No, I think, it, I think it's profound because Santana was always, she always had an interesting awareness of you. Mm-hmm. And it, you know, worshipped you and had an interesting awareness. But we picked her up from rehab. We stopped in Burlington to have lunch. Mm-hmm. I have beautiful pictures of us walking down Church Street. She conned me into a pair of, new pair of Birkenstocks because she's like, I did so good. I'm all better. My life is going to be great. Thanks for that. And we literally got home. We went to visit our cousins who were staying, and you literally left that visit. You dropped me off at the house that I was living so I could get my car. Yeah. And you know, it's, it's very interesting watching the dynamic between the two of you because, you know, I'm close to my father now. My father was the one who brought me to rehab. And now when we tell stories, the, 
the perspective, like the, the, the substance of the story is the same, we all know, you know, but the nuances of the stories are different. He'll tell me things and I'll be like, that is not the way that I remember it. Like I remember it differently. And he'll be like, no, I'm sure that it happened this way. So it's just interesting that that's perspective is, you know, different. So over the next few months, it got real bad for you. Yeah, it was three weeks. It was three weeks. Things got really, really bad again. Um, I hawked my car for $100. Um, one of my overdoses was during that time. Um, I didn't sleep for one whole week, and I remember going into severe hallucinations. Um, I wasn't paying my rent, obviously. I At that point, I'm pretty sure I had stolen everything from my family that I could at that point. I think I was just hustling to figure out how to pay for what I needed, but things went downhill really quick. Within three weeks, shit was worse than it was when I went in. And you were still living here in Plattsburgh? I was still living here in Plattsburgh. I was living at a apartment on Couch Street, Clinton Street. I remember, I remember. it well. <laughs> so there were there were a few of, there were a few events that happened. Like right before we, I took you to rehab that second time. Didn't you and Santana go down there and? And oh. I, I love this story. What, yeah. what was what it happened was after you told her not to do that? The, after, <laughs> yes, I had told her absolutely told her not to do that. At this point, I'm right. just I'm just I'm like my kid is gonna die. She is out there shooting heroin and she's gonna die. So I asked you, I'm, I want to go and I'm gonna just I'm gonna physically take her out. And you're like, don't do it because if she's not ready, there's nothing you're gonna be able to do. And I went to the Parkinson's house that night and I said, and you know, Ken's a cop, and I said. This is where my kid is. Can you do anything? Can you send the cops in? Can you bust up the joint? And, you know, he said, you know, well, we're watching, but there's really nothing we can do. And, and I said, well, I just can't wait any longer. I got to go. I, got, I have to do something. I can't do nothing anymore. And Santana and I showed up on the street outside of her apartment. And I'm standing on the street going, telling, talking to everybody that walked by, hey, you want to go we shoot heroin with Bridget Murnane? Bridget's <laughs> up there. We're going to shoot. Bridget, we're here. Where we go one, we go all. If you're going to go down, we're all going down together. Either you're coming out or Santana and I are coming in to get you. And Santana's crying, and she's like, you're not my sister anymore unless you come out of that house. I mean, it was just a shit show of just desperation. Did you come out of the house that night? Yeah. Yeah, and tell them to, get, I told her to get the hell out of the I told her to shut the F up, and I said, <laughs> right. they're going to kill you. Right. Because you're out here talking about heroin in front of my dealer's house. Like, right. you can't do this that. This is not a good thing <laughs> for you. This is not where you right. should be talking about that. <sighs> and was it the next day that you went, that we took you to rehab, or it was shortly after that, It was the correct? next day. It was the very next, the next day. day. Because I told her, and I was like, if you just fucking leave, I will go tomorrow, but you need to get out of here. Yeah. And so then I took you to rehab. Yeah. Right. Did I come get you, or did you yeah. come? To, I came and got you. You and, picked her up right there at that right house. There. And I remember that. Well, my recollection of that trip, you were a mess. Like I was really worried about you. You obviously were physically and emotionally drained, and and it was funny because I saw in that moment of time that kind of that switch in you, that real defeated like. I got to do this. I can't. This is going to kill me if I don't. Like, I get it. And I'm not sure at that when you were talking to me on the way over that you were necessarily ready, but it was obvious that you were like, I can't keep living. Like, this is, this is going to kill me. So yeah. I remember dropping you off at rehab that day and, and leaving you. And obviously, you flourished in rehab that time or did the stuff that you had to. And then when you were ready to get out of rehab, there was this idea of going to, of either coming home or going to a recovery house. Is that right? Yep. So. 
So there was the thought process of, I'm like, well, in my mind, I wanted to go home, but at the same time, I was like, you know what, whoever, whatever my counselor at this point tells me, I think her name was Danielle, she was wonderful, I had her both times. And I'm like, whatever you want me to do is what I'll do. So there was a girl who was, who was there with me who's like, oh, I'm going to the Mary DeVoe house, which is here in Plattsburgh. Yeah. And she's from Vermont, and I'm like, oh, maybe that's a good idea. So we looked into that. At that point, Mary DeVoe didn't have any options open. Mom was not keen on me coming home as much as I was like, well, if I'm in a sober house, like at least I'm, I'm not staying with you. I'll have a little structure. So she was kind of there, but not really. She really didn't want me to come home. And then there was a girl from Portland who was there, and she had told my counselor about this incredibly structured program up in Portland, Maine. And the stars kind of all aligned. They had a bed open. And we had made arrangements for mom to pick me up from rehab, bring me home so I could pack my stuff, and then we left for Portland less than 48 hours after I left rehab. How long did you live in the house in Portland? So I probably should have lived in the house a little longer. I probably lived there seven or eight months. I lived in that sober house. Um, and the reason that I had moved out is because she had multiple houses and she was renting this one and her lease was up and she's like, I'm not gonna renew it. I just don't have the people. So I ended up moving out around eight months. Ideally, I would have liked to stay in sober living around a year, but it worked out fine. I found a sober roommate and it was cool, um, but about eight months. You did get involved, I think, in probably 12-step programs up there and without violating the traditions, we'll just say that I think you did when you were in Portland, right? Yep, I did. That was one of the requirements of the house was to attend 12-step. Yep. And did you, uh, and then after you wound up in the business, right? Didn't you and somebody that you were sober with up there bought or operated a sober house, right? Yep. So I started off working at the Portland Recovery Community Center um, as, oh, I don't even remember my title, but I worked there and that was really great. And then another woman in recovery and I opened up a sober house in, Rain was born in 2016. I opened up 2017 and we opened a 16-bed woman sober house in Portland. It was wonderful. Good really for nice. you. So yeah, baby rain, that was boy meets girl in recovery campus. Mm -hmm. We're in love, we're gonna run off together, blah, 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 decide <laughs> to have a kid. Is that kind of how that all transpired? <laughs> uh, I wouldn't say we're gonna run off in love, but um, you know, I was a year and a half into recovery. I had been living on my own for a while. I had a car, I had kind of all this stuff. I had a job. For the most part, my relationships with my family were starting to be on the mend. And I had this idea and I told my sponsor and I said, hey, there's this there's this new kid in recovery. What do you think? And she goes, I wouldn't do it. And I'm like, why not? She goes, it's just not smart. And I'm like, I'm like, okay, I think I'm gonna do it. And she goes, what if, what if you end up pregnant? And I'm like, that won't happen. I ended up pregnant. Um, <laughs> Funny how those people who come before yeah. us kind of know what's gonna happen. <laughs> Weird how they yeah. knew that was happening. Yeah. But, um, and then I had rain and you know, um, that was a, those were a couple rough years navigating that um, her father was using for most of her life. He recently just got sober about a year and a half ago. Um, but she's been the biggest blessing that I've had, I think, in recovery. I she's think everybody really knows that I'm not necessarily enamored with kids, but I absolutely love your child. She's, she's cool. just very, very cool. And we I like have her. pictures of her in my office, and she's cool as hell. Can we back up for a minute about kind of your early recovery? And I know that, that the moment of, you know, when you ended up pregnant. But, but prior to that, for me, the recovery community that she developed, the recovery support system that I think that you had at that time, you had a good, I mean, a really good group of people mm -hmm. that were all in recovery and doing really well. It was really wonderful to see as a parent, to see your kid have this group of friends that were 
you know, were really, I think everybody was really kind of pulling in the same direction and, and you were doing fun things, you know, you were participating in all of what Portland had to offer. I mean, Portland's a, a wonderful community. There were a lot of great activities. I felt like you were really, like you were really had found, had found a place that you belonged and you had people around you. And, and as a parent, that was, that was just so, I don't know, it was, it was relieving. Um, but you felt I felt good I felt good about what you were doing in your life and where you were going and the people you were spending your time with. It was a, it was a neat place. You know, it's it's funny. Before you do that, you also came back here and gave me I think my twenty five year medallion at a oh. meeting. Is that right? I did. Was it twenty five years? Yes. And yes. that was one of the most special, special you know anniversaries, recovery anniversaries I had because I don't have children, so I never. You know, I, I didn't see my kid go through this and then get sober. So you're the closest. And I've always kind of appointed myself as, you know, one of your adopted fathers. And, <laughs> and, uh, and so that was like a highlight for me to have you come back and know that I was part of it. But one of the things that I wanted to say to you, and then I want to talk about recovery, is that you did something for me that you probably don't recognize. And, and that was when I watched what you did in your the end of your active using to your mother and your sister and your family, um, it really brought me back to how, how when we're addicts and in the height of addiction, we will do anything and harm anybody to get high. And I don't think I realized the damage that I had done to my family, even though I'd been sober 20 plus years. Like I'd, I'd, uh, it really rang true to me when I saw it through the eyes of somebody that I was so, so close to. So, you know, I'm always, I'm appreciative of that because it's made me try to be a better family member, to recognize that I really took a lot from my family. Like, and mm -hmm. I'm not trying to make it bad. I'm just saying like no, it was, sure. when I saw it that way, it was really, you know, an, an intriguing thing. And one of the other things that I've always marveled at about you is you never let recovery stop you from doing the things that you wanted to do, you know? You're a concert goer, you, you travel, you do things. And I think, I'd love you to talk a bit about that because I think that's so important for people to recognize that life doesn't end when you get in recovery. It can be a beginning and you can still go and have fun doing all the things that we did before. I mean, I think you've seen more fish shows than I have now, quite honestly, although I did see my fair amount in the early days. So 83. Yeah, you're way more, <laughs> you're way, way, you're way more than, you're way more 83? than 83? Mm-hmm. So talk to me a little bit about recovery and how just <laughs> right? what, what recovery life's been like for you. So recover it's been a journey in so many different ways. You know, we started in Portland and you start within that first year. And for me, that first year was, was really easy. You know, I was in a new place, didn't know where to get drugs. Come to find out drugs are much more accessible in Portland <laughs> than right, they are in Plattsburgh. Sure. Um, but I didn't know the people to go to, didn't know the places to go to. And it was it was easy because... I was away from all of my stressors. I had made new friends, new connections, and life was easy. Um, and then things started to get a little harder and real life starts to come in. You start to get the job. Oh, I have to pay these back taxes for these three years that I haven't done or whatever. Um, but it's this constant journey of evolving who you are and adapting to the world around you. Um, and thankfully, I had friends that have been my constant friends since I was probably six or seven months. Like my friend Tom, who is my absolute, absolute best friend, and I just I just adore him. Um, I think I, he came here, didn't he? I met him. Did I not? Tom. I met one of your friends. Tom or Tommy. There's two different ones. I don't remember Tom which is one. In, Tom is in his 50s. Um, yeah, he was older. Bold, bald. 
I can't remember. Well, it was the guy's name was Tom. I'm yeah. sure what he, he yeah. came here and I met him. Seemed Tom's like a great an guy. Amazing, yeah, yeah. Amazing he's guy. he's yeah. just one of my favorite humans on this planet and someone who was just with me through everything, through my pregnancy, through birth, through everything. Um, and recovery just always looks so different. And you know, you talked a little bit about fun in recovery. So when I was using, I went to a bunch of fish shows, went to a bunch of concerts, got high the whole time, and had had a great time. I guess quote unquote. Um, it took me a while to want to go to fish shows again because I knew when I listened to the music, I was like, okay, I feel home, this feels normal, but I didn't know how I was gonna react with all the pot smoking, all the drugs, all of this. Um, and then one day I just decided, like, I'm just gonna go. We're just gonna go, we're gonna figure it out, we're gonna have a good time. And there is a yellow balloon group for fish, um, a place for people who choose to live, dr or choose to go to shows drug and alcohol free. So it's a recovery group of people who love fish. And when I found that, I was like, oh shit, we're gonna go all the time now because I know there's people like me who are at these fish shows. And aside from being around people in recovery and you know that feeling of home and like I'm just home and I have these people, fish is the other place that I just feel home. I look around and I see thousands and thousands of people who are there because we love this band who sings about you know nothing but everything all at the same time. Yeah, that part for me has always been cool, and I think it's important that younger people speak about being able to have fun and live in recovery. It's not, oftentimes people think it's this thing where I have to be sitting in my room all day thinking about how I don't get high, and it's not really about that. It's it's like kind of living this life that is what I wanted to live before. You know, it, it's funny you talk about that. I've been to a lot of concerts, both high and, and not high, and I remember the ones now, like I remember the fun that I had a lot of the other ones. I remember that, you know, I fell off the stool or whatever, <laughs> you know what I mean? So I, I go down and listen to the music. So, you know, that's kind of cool. So in addition to, you know, going to concerts, I mean, for you to jump in a car with a bunch of your friends and go to Florida, mm -hmm. both friends that are in recovery and now friends that are not, for you to have, you know, your life has kind of taken on its own, you know, its own kind of meaning, purpose, and direction. I mean, you really, you know, her, she really is just living, I think, you know, this really beautiful life with a, you know, an assortment of, of different people and influences um, all in your world, and you're doing it really, just, just doing it so well. All right, so let's get to one of the most important things that happened in your life. Three, four, five years ago, you, two. you might not, two years ago, you were home visiting, and you were talking to people and you were kind of, I think, a little bit uncomfortable in Portland. You had the baby, it was a struggle, it was all those things. So you were th toying with the idea of coming home, I believe, is this a fair assessment? And I think you probably talked to some people, I might have been one of them, and yes. we talked about coming home. And I don't remember what I said, but I think I said something along the lines of, it was the hardest thing I ever did in recovery, moving to a new place, and I would probably caution you against it is that accurate yeah so what was the, so what what happened with the whole move because I know that was big for you yeah so my daughter was three we had been living um, in Portland for three years I'd been there for about five and she I was a single parent I was living in a communal housing with 12 other people which was fantastic and it was lovely um, but Portland rents were so high that was the only way she and I could really afford to live in Portland um, and I didn't have any help I didn't have any of my family. My daughter was still too young that my friends were like, oh, I don't want to break her, I don't want to change her diaper. You know, they, they weren't at that point where she's like fun and she can go, not that she wasn't fun, but she wasn't old enough to really start to enjoy for people who may not have liked kids. 
Um, so I felt like I didn't have a ton of support with my kid. I hadn't showered by myself in three years. You know, <laughs> I, any time that I needed a break, I had to drive five hours to drop her off with my mom so I could have, you know, a couple day break. And um, it was really, it was starting to get to me and it was starting to become really overwhelming being a parent. And my dad had been telling me for years since I'd had rain, no, just come home, we'll help, you know, it'll be good. You know, you'll, she'll be around family, you'll be around family. Where, as my mother said, don't ever come home. We don't want you here. <laughs> wait, wait, wait a oh. You know, you have you have your friends up in Portland. I think it's best you stay. Um, I, I guess how I heard it was that she didn't want me here, but <laughs> which was not I my message know, at all. I my know. message was in support of you, the recovery community, and really this life that you had there that you really were very happy with. In fairness to your mom, you know, I was probably a pretty big mm -hmm. driving force behind that because I'd seen it happen so many times where people who yeah. got clean and sober with this group of people, we become very dependent on them. And we go to a new town, and even though there's great people here, they're not the same. It's not Tommy, and it's not the people that you met up there, and it's not the people that you went through all the early struggles with. So it's really easy to become disconnected, and, and that's the worry. You, you always worry about that. And, and uh, so that's what a lot of it was. It wasn't that obviously we love having you here and loved having your daughter yeah. here I mean it's great but it was it was I was scared I was like I, I've seen this thing happen a lot of times uh, over the years that I've been sober so we were worried about you and and you know what I, I think if so. I were if I were saying to you obviously it wasn't it hasn't been an easy road since you've come home, but you've done pretty well since you've gotten here, you know? I mean, I think, right? I think so. I think that, I think our relationship has gotten significantly better since I moved home. I think the five years that I lived in Portland, we were always okay, but we didn't know really how to communicate effectively. I think when you would say something, I would take really offense to it, or when I kind of came back with our sarcastic tone, which I meant to be funny, you would get upset because you thought I was being mean. Um, our communication level was, was horrible. And I think over the past couple years, you and I have really learned how to communicate effectively in ways that works for our relationship. So I think that's one bonus to moving home. Um, my daughter is super happy, although my daughter does constantly say, Mom, when are we moving back to Maine? I don't know at this point if my mom would let my daughter move back to Maine. Right, yeah, <laughs> I, I think you're probably right, Bridge. You're probably not going but, anywhere um, anytime soon. Yeah, it probably wasn't the best decision for me to move back if I'm looking long-term, looking at my happiness, looking at all of that. It, it definitely wasn't the right decision to move home, but you know, we deal with the decisions that we make in recovery and you know, things are okay. My kid is happy. I have a pretty good life. It's not perfect, but it's pretty good. And you know, sometimes you just have to be grateful for the things that you have and it's not always gonna be perfect. I think that you, you, uh, you know, it's, it's funny. There's, we all make decisions in our life. And one of the things about it is nobody's ever gonna tell you what to do. You know, we were talking earlier about what could somebody have done for you earlier? And I coincidentally agree with you probably very little. And even today, I'll get great advice from people, but I'm gonna make the decisions that I'm gonna make. And sometimes they're gonna turn out bad for me. And as long as I'm willing to pay the consequences or whatever it is, then I'm willing to do that. And I think that's what you did. And, and you know, recovery is about living it's about it's about saying this is what's in my best interest right now and and uh, so yeah I think that you did fine did you want to ask her something so I just I just kind of want I wanted to talk about this because I think this is this is an interesting transition point for people in recovery when you're trying to make a big decision about uh, am I going to change where I'm living am I going to go you going home you you didn't 
give up this community of people, but your relationships changed, and you and you kind of had to replace that relation, those group of relationships with relationships with you know really your family, which has has become you know kind of the foundation of of where you spend your time. Where in Portland, the foundation of where you spent your time were these people that were in recovery, that you had this really great connection kind of your your whole rebirth was with these people and and I think you're right I think we've had an opportunity to have some some you know full immersion I mean you live two streets behind me and so we're close enough and we spend a little bit of time together uh, sometimes we spend a lot of bit of time but we have an opportunity just because it's it's easy and convenient to spend time plus I think we like to we like to do some of the same things and absolutely love having you and your daughter here and uh, and and yet I do see what you've had to give up to be home. I see where those relationships are still so foundational to, to you and, and who you are. And that's, you know, that's a hard, that's a hard piece to, to not have in your back pocket, in your backyard, uh, as your, as your kind of your everyday bit of connection to, uh, to, you know, things that are foundational to you. So I appreciate you being here. So when you got back here, you, you, you now work at Alliance for Positive Health, is yes, that right? So talk to me a little about the job. It's kind of in the recovery field, although not exactly, is it? Sort of, kind of. Um, we, we definitely talk about recovery in the, in the class that I teach. So I go into all of the prisons in upstate New York. So Clinton, Franklin, Altona, upstate, Bear Hill, Adirondack, there's six. Um, and I go in and I teach a 30-session course on HIV, um, STDs, hepatitis C, um, risk reduction, all of that stuff. And when we talk a little bit about risk reduction, we also go in and talk a little bit about recovery, especially in the new modules that we're teaching. And I go in and I teach the incarcerated individuals about these topics. Um, they take a test at the end, they give a presentation, and then they can go on and teach the other incarcerated individuals about that as well. Are you enjoying um, doing that? I love my job. I know you do. I really love my job. And that's the other thing. If I were to ever move back to Portland, I'd have to get give up this job and that's that's tough because yeah. I really love my job and I can see it, it brings me joy I can see you being really good at it you have that kind of personality your mom used gregarious you you do and I think that's important in that kind of arena plus you have a toughness about you like you're not mm. in a jail appearing like you're worried about anything you you know you have the ability to handle yourself mm -hmm. so what's on the horizon for Bridget Murnane what do you I, I mean and I, I actually want to ask you two questions before we wrap this up. So first off, you were a practicing Catholic. You did a lot of that stuff. Did you go back when you got sober to the Catholic Church or do any of that kind of stuff, or did you just stay away from it and say, I'm all done with that? No, I did not go back to being a practicing Catholic. Um, I have found my faith to be more in spirituality and the fact that whatever is out there is constantly evolving, and I no longer have to put a face or a name to it. I don't have to have Jesus Christ as, you know, this is my God. and it changes just like I do. Um, just as humans were evolving, how do we not expect the spirit that's taking care of us to also be evolving? Um, so no, I did not go back to being that a practicing seems, Catholic. <laughs> that seems to be a pretty a pretty normal kind mm -hmm. of thing in, in people in recovery. Some go back. Some decide mm -hmm. that they want the the you know the kind of uh, structure, structure to, mm -hmm. to that. Mm -hmm. um, most of us find it, you know, not most of us, I shouldn't say that, but a lot of us find it differently, but we all seem to find it somewhere. And I think you're right. We use the term spirituality more than the term, you know, religion or any of that kind of stuff. It's mm -hmm. this, you know, spiritual life that I'm, that I'm on. Are you suggesting that, and purely for clarification. I'm suggesting that you're probably not very spiritual because oh, you're in, not in Talk about it. So. Oh, <laughs> um, really? 
I'm, I want some clarity for people that may be paying attention. So what I hear both of you saying is that there is some foundation to long-term recovery that, that, you, that you do need to become connected to some form of spirituality. I don't or that, or, and I don't mean to speak for everybody, but, but people that we know that are successful have found some connection to spirit, spirit long-term success, have fun, found some connection to spirituality in their recovery. So I'd be interested in what Bridget says, but I would stop short of saying you have to. I would say that it worked for me. It certainly has helped me, but I know people who have decided that that's not a path that they want to go and they've done well in recovery. Is that kind of your take as well? Yeah, agreed. Um, there were several people up in Portland who um, kind of didn't preach that they didn't, you know, have that kind of spirituality, but definitely when it came up in conversation, because, you know, the higher power spirituality comes up a lot. There are people that say, you know what, that just wasn't for me. I found other outlets and other things that I have a mm. connection to. So it really is dependent on the person. Yeah. Like recovery isn't one size fits all. So for people to be able, I and that's that a lot. the beautiful yeah. thing about it. There's so much autonomy to be able to do with what you want. Yeah, I think, you know, there's there's probably a couple of principles for recovery that no matter what you do, you, you have to have. I, I think one of them is you got to be able to be honest with yourself. You, sure. you know, if you're honest with yourself, that's one. The other is, you know, connection to people. And it doesn't necessarily need to always be other people who are exactly like you, but good family connections, good friends. Good. You need, we need people. Like we count on, like, you know, as as much as I think, you know, in the, in the days of your addiction, you were alone or as I was, we we don't like to be alone like we like we're we're that's one of those things you know like isolation is what this disease breeds and so we crave that isolation when we're using but truthfully we need people and we like being around people when we get into recovery mm -hmm. very yeah. accurate so what's Great. on Bridget Murnane's horizon? What's the rest? Of, if you, how old are you now? 29? 29, 20, I'm 30. Oh boy, oh boy, you've reached it, Bridget. You've reached it. But I hear that the thir 30s are better than your 20s, but I think that's just people in their 30s saying that, so. <laughs> well, the 50s are better <laughs> than go. your 30s, you know, and pretty soon the 60s Almost are gonna be 60s. better than your 40s. There we go. Um, I know, it's so funny. I feel so old when I'm around you. Like, you're 29, and I've been sober for 30 years. Like, yeah. <laughs> it really is just like, uh, 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 I don't know how to figure that. So what's, what do you, you know, if you if you could wave a magic wand, what's life look like for you in the next 10, 15, 20 years? Um, oh, my God, my daughter will be 15 in high school. That's not wave of magic wand. That is going to happen. <laughs> right, yes, point. she is going to make it um, there. So she'll, you know, my kid will be happy and we'll have found our own happiness together, you know, as a family, wherever that is and whatever that looks like. Um, I hope to, once COVID's over, to be doing a little more traveling with her. You know, I have goals for her and I traveling together and going to some national parks, hitting all the aquariums, because that's like our thing we do together. Um, I don't know that I want to project 10 years in the future because I think it's a lot of pressure, but I that's think I think we just want to be happy. That's the best answer I could have asked from you. You know, one of the things is I, I used to spend time trying to figure out exactly where my life's going to be. And now I look at it and go, you know what? I want to be healthy. I want to be happy. I, I want to be okay. And as long as those things happen in my life, everything else is gravy. You know, money, prestige, power, all those mm -hmm. things. Yeah, they're cool, but they really have very little to do with the happiness in life you know happiness comes from relationships and those types of things so I'm very proud of you and I'm uh, like I said you 
you, I love your sister. Your sister is fabulous, but you're my favorite. Thank um, you. And Aww. you probably, and she- Warm, Warms my heart. She does she, know it. She knows it. <laughs> she I even mean, told her, I said, I'm sorry, Santana, I love you, but yeah, I'm sorry, you don't get to be the favorite. And I think one day she said to me, well, if I go out and shoot heroin for six years and go to rehab, will I be the favorite? And I'm like, well, let's not, no. I'll, you let's can be like that. the- you, You're fine being the that. second. You don't need to do that to be the favorite. So thank you for coming. Anything you want to add, random thoughts about recovery, anything? that or you don't have to, I just, you know. So I don't think I really have anything to add. Um, I want to thank you guys for having me on your podcast. Um, my daughter and I are both longtime listeners. We listen to everyone, and she just loves hearing Uncle Mike and Yaya on in the radio. She always says, is Yaya here? Is Uncle Mike here? Where are they? <laughs> That's so awesome. Um, That's so, so cool. I appreciate that you guys have put this podcast out, and I think it's uh, very beneficial for a lot of people, and you guys really do a great job, so thank you. Great. Aww, thank you for coming, great. and maybe in a year or two we'll have you come back if we're still on the air, and we'll get an update on where you are and how Rain's doing, and, uh, and uh, yeah, we'll see what happens. Betsy, do you have anything else you want to add? I, uh, I, I always have something to say. Right? Well, yes. So, thank you for uh, for for inviting Bridget. Wait, I want to. Can I just poll the audience before we close? Though I think I said like three or four really nice things about Betsy today, right? Several. Did yes. I? You right? Yes. I really did. Like I want it to be known that I, I did. Just, okay, so well, go ahead. And you can I have the floor back. Thank now, you so. so much for doing that. I want to thank you for thinking of Bridget. You know, we wanted to talk about youth and recovery at this podcast, and and you know what a what a, a better example than one that is is you know intimate and personal to both of us because this is my this is my kid I mean here she is and and I wanted to comment that um, this morning I was sitting down and I was trying to craft some notes about things that I wanted to be prepared to talk about and one of the most curious things that came out of it is that heroin and heroin are two what is that called when two words what's it called a homophone same well, whatever it, it thank You're you for that. Smart. Go Brittany. Wicked smart. She's right, too. And, and so. I would be lost without Bryn. We would. <laughs> We'd so be lost without Bryn. Bryn. We'd be lost smart. without Telly, but, you know, we love, we love super smart. You guys ever people. need to go on strike? <laughs> Whoa, easy there, cowgirl. So I was, I, what, what came to my mind was, you know, heroin was this debilitating part of who you are. And, and yet when I look at you and I see you as a heroine, this kind of courageous, strong, you know, mighty woman that I, I, I do. This is how I see you. And, and, and you're a beautiful um, inspiration to your daughter and people around you. And I'm just so, I'm so very proud of you. So I think about this heroin heroine, like this is my, this is my heroin heroine that is, is right here that, you know, and I, and I'm really just, I really am proud of you every day for all you're an amazing mom. You're just a great human being that has just grown and, and I love your passion, and I love your fight, and your feist, and uh, and and I just I love you, and I am so proud of you. So thank you for coming here because it does take courage to show up in in front of a camera with people and and talk about the things that you did, and and uh, so thank you for that. I love you. Love you too. Thank you. And I would echo thank you. And as I, as we wrap this up, you know, it is a an interesting day. 
What? Oh, you want to see my sweat? What? I'm gonna I'm gonna show you my shirt, Telly. Don't worry. <laughs> it is an it is an interesting dynamic when you bring a mother and daughter together, and there's obviously history. And we may actually have my father come on and and Ooh. you know interview him too. He, he's thinking about doing it. And and uh, you know I, I think what we try to do here is is be a little bit raw and have people come on here and be willing to talk about stuff that can be very hard. It's it's these these are not easy topics. And so I'm very thankful and and. Uh, Please visit our website, mhab.org. Check out the marketplace. If you need help, please reach out to one of the places that can help you. MHAB is one of many. Um, people in recovery do have a great deal of fun and we're incredibly, try to be incredibly helpful to other people that struggle with this. So if you're watching this and you have some troubles, understand that you can come in here at any time, doesn't matter how old, how young you are, doesn't matter how long you used, and you can get a life like Bridget has or like I have and, and really be enjoying what's going on. And so we hope that you do that. Um, with that said, thanks again, Bridget. Thank you. COVID out. Wait, we gotta talk about your shirt. We're not done, it's not COVID out. Not COVID out. So this week for my special shirt, I have one, why don't you read it? So they may not see it. Uh, before you try to hurt my feelings, please keep in mind, I probably don't have any, and you probably do. So factual, so factual. So that is my caustic sweatshirt, and, and I hide behind this little air of caustic-tivity or whatever it is. Caustic-tivity. <laughs> but I think everybody knows that I'm a pretty sensitive guy at my core, and so this sweatshirt's Aww. probably not truthful, but I need to wear it anyway to keep this image up. So now we're going to close this podcast and say COVID out. See you next week. Thanks for joining us today at Recovery Uncovered. No matter where you are in your recovery journey, or if you're supporting the recovery journey of a loved one, just know today is the first day of the rest of your life. Visit our website at mhab.org. And if you want to become an old timer in recovery, don't use and don't die. This has been Recovery Uncovered. <laughs>